reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist News Flash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell and with Kat Arney. Dave, what have you got for us first this week? This week, the recently launched Herschel Space Telescope has re- revealed a new way in which massive stars might form. Stars are, of course, a major building block of the universe, and our star, the Sun, powers almost all the life on Earth. So understanding the workings of stars and the Sun is very important. One big problem is, according to present theories, stars shouldn't get bigger than about eight times the mass of the Sun. This is because the light they produce as they're forming should blow away the surrounding material before it can accumulate on the star. So how big do they get? They seem to get up to 120 times the mass of the sun. So <laughs> they're quite rare at that size, but they do exist. So there's obviously something wrong with the theory. Um, uh, but investigating and finding out why is really difficult because young stars are surrounded by clouds of opaque dust and gas and they obscure our ability to see what's going on. However, in May 2009, the European Space Telescope Herschel was launched. It's the largest space telescope ever deployed and it's equipped with a 3.5 metre mirror. And it's, steady up, and it's set up to study the infrared region of the spectrum. This means it can see straight through the dust that's hampered early attempts to look at the births of these new stars. So when things like Hubble were originally trying to probe these kind of reaches of the universe, the problem was there was all this dust and gas in the way because it was looking at visible light, but infrared can see straight through that dust. Yes, basically the longer the wavelength, the better it goes through dust. Um, And so they've managed to look into these regions. In fact, it was one of the big reasons why Herschel was launched in the first place. Um, Now, Herschel spotted a bubble of hot gas, which is expanding supersonically through a cloud of other gas and dust, producing a high-density shock wave at the surface where the two meet. And intriguingly, on the surface, a star is beginning to form. It's already got the mass of between 8 and 10 times that of the sun, and it's still growing. There's still about 2,000 solar masses around it, which could grow up, and it's only going to get bigger. So it's quite possible this shockwave could be compressing everything and kind of getting over this um, means it forms a lot quicker, and so it can get a lot bigger before it blows away the surrounding material. Intriguing to think that, that finally we've, we've got some answers into how this could happen. Yeah, and Herschel is, I mean, it's a brand new um, thing looking at the universe in a different wavelength and in much greater detail at this wavelength than we ever have done before. So goodness knows what we'll find. Hopefully it should be interesting. Space science is always interesting. Thank you, Dave. Kat, what have you got for us? Yes, well, you might remember a couple of weeks ago on the show, we discussed the science of archaeogenetics. That's unravelling the mysteries of the past that are in our genes. And this week, there's been a really important step forward in that field with the sequencing of the Neanderthal genome, published in the journal Science. And the new research helps to answer some puzzles, such as, did humans and Neanderthals ever mate? And how many genes might we share? Presumably, given that these guys haven't been around for 25,000 years or so, samples of Neanderthal DNA are pretty rare. Yes, and what they did is they used samples of bones from three female Neanderthals who lived uh, in the area of Croatia more than 38,000 years ago. And then they used the latest DNA sequencing sequencing technology to sequence the DNA and build up a composite genome. So they've got around about 1.3 times coverage of the whole genome, or about a third of that is quite murky still. But then came the fun stuff, comparing the genome they've got from these Neanderthal women to the genomes of humans living in different parts of the world today. And what do they find? 
Um, well, in fact, they did find that modern Europeans and Asians share about between 1% and 4% of our DNA. Um, but interestingly, Africans don't. Now, this tells us that any interbreeding between us and Neanderthals must have happened after modern humans migrated out of Africa, but before they really radiated across Asia and Europe. So this pins it down to about 30,000 to 45,000 years ago, maybe even as early as 80,000 years ago in the Middle East. But in fact, many people in Europe and Asia may have a small but significant Neanderthal component in their genes, including uh, the study's author, Svante Parbo, as well. That's really neat that it fits with our understanding of human migrations in those early days. Um, what else is it telling us about Neanderthals, though? Well, they've been doing a lot of comparison, comparing the Neanderthal genes with those that are in our, ourselves, present-day humans, to try and find the genes that make us modern. We're about 99.84% identical to Neanderthals, genetically speaking, but there are crucial differences. Now, at the moment, the significance of these differences isn't really clear, but they found them in genes involved in metabolism, skin, bones and brain development. But, of course, we can't tell how those actually relate yet to, to physically, the physical properties they might affect. Now, also, the research allows us to speculate a bit as to how Neanderthals and humans might have interacted together. Now, the researchers from these results, they think that just a few Neanderthals infiltrated groups of humans and started breeding rather than a sort of a mass mixing and breeding of the two species. So maybe there was some kind of cultural difference that it wasn't really culturally acceptable for Neanderthals to, to mate with humans. Now, of course, there's a lot more analysis to do, but it's a really fascinating look into our genetic past and does show that many of us may have a little bit more Neanderthal in us than we might have thought. I still think it's amazing that they actually managed to get DNA in sufficient quantities and sufficient quality to do that kind of sequencing. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Kat. Now, taking a historical look at a slightly different thing, the most famous person in history probably to have washed their hands of something was, of course, Pontius Pilate. We know who he was. He was the guy who was at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, he washed his hands for moral reasons, and we often use that very phrase, I'm going to wash my hands of this. But there's a wonderful paper in the journal Science this week which suggests that actually physically washing your hands could affect the way that you make decisions. This is two researchers from the University of Michigan. It's Spike Lee and Norbert Schwartz. And what they did was to recruit 40 undergraduate students, ostensibly to take part in what they dubbed to be a consumer survey. And what they found when they were doing their study was that they asked the students to look at an array of 30 different CDs just musical CDs, and select 10 that they thought were the best and then arrange them in order of their favourite to their least favourite. The next thing they did was to then choose the fifth and sixth CD that the students had selected. Now, the reason they went for the fifth and sixth is that when you ask people to make a list of something, the one at the top of the list, number one, or the one at the bottom of the list, number ten, they're going to have the strongest feelings about. So if you ask people to discriminate between those, they've usually got a good reason for putting them first and last. So if you go for the middle of the list, there's less to discriminate the two things. So they said to the students, which of these two CDs would you like to have as a gift for taking part in the survey? And the students were asked to pick one of the two, their fifth one or their sixth one. They said, OK, let's put that to one side for a minute. Thank you very much. Now, let's carry on with our consumer survey. Have a look at this soap. And they gave them a bottle of soap. Now, on the one hand, they said to them, could you just look at this bottle of soap? And half the students were just asked to look at the bottle. The other half of the students were asked physically to wash their hands as well. After they'd done that, they went back to the CDs and they asked them again to rank the CDs, the 10 CDs, and then choose between the fifth and the sixth CD. 
Now, what was amazing is that the people who didn't wash their hands stuck to their guns and vigorously defended their original choice in CD. I like that one, and they invented all these reasons why the one they'd originally chosen was much better than the one that they'd rejected. But the people who had washed their hands showed no such bias, and they were much more open-minded at looking at the decision for a second time. The researchers then repeated the study with jam this time, asking people which of two flavours of jam they would prefer, and got exactly the same result. Now, we don't know exactly why washing your hands should affect this this decision-making process, but what it does appear to do is not just wash away any moral objections you may have to something, but also to wash away the traces of, of past decisions that you've made, enabling you to take a fresh look at things. So if you have a difficult decision to make, try washing your hands and then see how you get on. Dave? It's fascinating. Now I'm going to have a look at something which has fascinated lots of people from surveillance agencies to possibly the more dubious parts of society. It's being able to see through opaque objects and take photos through them. Now, if the object absorbs all the light hitting it, then obviously it's impossible for um, any light to get through, so you can't take any photos. But if an object's translucent and scatters the light in lots of random directions, mixing up the image so much that it's impossible for eyes to decode it, um, then in theory, none of the information about that image is lost, even though we can't see an image at all. Um, now, Sebastian Popoff and his colleagues at the Langevin Institute in Paris have worked out a way of getting this information back. They've managed to see through a slide covered with zinc oxide particles, which to your eyes looks just completely white. They've done it by first shining a series of carefully calibrated laser pulses through the slide and working out what patterns he's produced on the camera sensor. And then from these, they can work out what effect is happening on the light as it goes through it. And they can kind of reverse that effect. And then if they put an object in between, you can then reverse all that, the effect of the slide and you can get back the image of the object which is behind this slide. Now this isn't going to let us see through an arbitrary wall anytime soon but in the short term it might be useful for seeing things through an opaque uh, microscope setup so if you've got lots of sand and sand particles and you want to see an object in the middle of the sand you might be able to do something cunning like that and it's also been suggested that um, the same technique could make a white wall behave exactly like a mirror because it's doing exactly the same thing just reflecting instead of letting light go straight through it so you might be able to use a white wall as a mirror sometime in the future so a white mirror possibly which uh, might spare me the indignity of looking in my bathroom mirror in the morning who knows maybe miracles are possible cat what have you got for us next It's a story about breast cancer. Now, breast cancer survival is a real success story for science. Around 80% of women now survive breast cancer for at least five years, compared with just half of women with the disease back in the 70s. But most of the success is in cancers that are fuelled by female hormones. And these can be treated with hormone-blocking drugs or um, those that have the HER2 receptor on them. It's a molecule uh, that can be blocked with the drug Herceptin. But there are also so-called triple negative cancers, which don't have any of these hormone receptors or the HER2 receptor and they're much harder to treat and survival is poorer. But now new research published in the journal Nature today from an international team led by Cancer Research UK's Madalena Tarsunas in Oxford, Jos Junkers in the Netherlands and Shridhar Ganesan in the US has discovered why these cancers may be resistant to chemotherapy and radiotherapy as well as an intriguing link to the breast cancer gene BRCA1. Yes, BRCA1. So isn't a faulty form of that found in a number of hereditary forms of breast cancer where the women who carry that gene in a family tend to have an above average risk of breast cancer? 
Yes, and here's the connection, because around 9 out of 10 triple negative breast cancers are in women with faulty BRCA1, so clearly there is a link. And sometimes these BRCA1 deficient cancers respond to radiotherapy and chemotherapy, particularly with platinum-based drugs such as carboplatin and cisplatin. But often the tumours develop resistance to treatment and start growing again. And now Tarsunas and her colleagues wanted to find out why. So what did they do? Well, the research started by looking at cells grown in the lab that lacked BRCA1, BRCA1. Now, contrary to what you might think, these cells actually don't grow well at all. In fact, in in cancers in people, it's the combination of faulty BRCA1 with other faulty genes that makes cancer cells grow. And uh, then the researchers used a clever trick to randomly knock out genes in these BRCA-deficient cells to hunt for other genes that, in combination, made the cells grow out of control. Oh, that's interesting. So what did they find? Well, they found several candidates, but the most interesting one was a gene called 53BP1. Now, it's normally involved in helping cells to repair damaged DNA. And then the scientists went on to discover that while cells lacking just BRCA1 can be killed with cisplatin or radiotherapy, cells lacking both BRCA1 and 53BP1 were resistant to treatment. So this explains how these cancers may develop resistance to therapy. Now, you mentioned these triple negative cancers earlier, the the ones that we spoke about to start with, and said they were linked to BRCA1. So what's the connection? Well, the scientists went on to look at more than 1,800 samples from breast cancer patients and they looked at the levels of 53BP1 and other characteristics of these samples and they discovered that most triple negative cancers also had low levels of 53BP1, suggesting that the gene was faulty in those cancers. And 53BP1 was also faulty in most of the cancers from women with BRCA1 faults. But what does this mean for patients then? Well, for a start, this research tells us that the BRCA-deficient triple-negative breast cancers with low levels of 53BP1 are likely to be resistant to radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So maybe in the future this could be developed into a test to help doctors decide what sort of treatment to give to women with these types of tumours. And in fact, if we can discover exactly how the loss of this protein, 53BP1, causes cancer cells to become resistant to treatment, it might show us new targets for drugs to improve the effectiveness of chemotherapy and radiotherapy and help to overcome this resistance and of course that would help to save many many lives in the future indeed cat thank you very much now also in the news this week researchers in toronto and in cambridge have made a major breakthrough in understanding how dna works more specifically how the same gene can produce different gene products in different types of cells to tell us more is Yosef Barash from the University of Toronto. And tell us first, if you could, Yosef, what's the, the problem you've actually been grappling with? What are you trying to solve here? Basically, the problem that we were uh, handling, if I put it in one sentence, was to, be to figure out how alternative splicing works. Of course, that wouldn't mean much if I don't explain what is alternative splicing and why is it important. So I'll start off by starting with what people do know, and people do know usually about the genes and that they're coded in DNA molecules, And many people know that scientists about a decade ago mapped the human genome and that they found there are about 20,000 genes altogether in the human genome. What people usually don't know is that the same gene can actually code for different genetic messages in the form of messenger RNA molecules. And these different messages can operate quite differently in the cell. So in other words, in different tissues, genes which have the same genetic code can have a different effect by effectively chopping the gene up in a slightly different way so it turns into a different recipe. Exactly. So 
instead of a one gene, one product kind of model, we have a one gene, many product model. And what we were trying to figure out is how this works. So how, what is the code within the genetic code that tells us, tells the cell how, when, under certain, uh, what conditions, etc., to perform these splicing variants. So in a nerve cell, the same gene may do something completely different to a liver cell, but the big question is, how does it know it's a nerve cell or a liver cell and therefore to behave differently? Yeah, exactly. And how did you approach that? Basically what we did is interdisciplinary research. So we started off by doing experiments, and that was done at the Blanco lab, and we measured around 4,000 pieces called axons of genetic messages across 27 different mouse tissues. Then we analyzed the data to figure out how these changes occur, so the different inclusion or exclusion of these bits uh, and pieces of the messages in the different tissues, how does it change? And then we went to the genome to figure out what is, the, what is this code, what are the different components that determine the, these changes so we can actually look at the genetic code and figure out, if we just look at it, what would be the changes in, say, brain versus liver, as you suggested. So, in other words, by looking at many thousands of genetic sequences and doing this lots and lots of times in lots of different tissues, you can begin to tie together how a different gene gets cut up in a different way in a specific tissue, and then you can begin to work out what sequences are hidden in the genetic material that's making that happen. Exactly, and that's the computer science part of the uh, research, the machine learning part of uh, the research, exactly. So presumably this is really important because what it will enable us to now do is when we want to do, say, gene therapy on something, up until now we've taken a very simple approach and said this gene turns into this product in a cell regardless of what cell type it is, so we just put the gene in and we'll get the product out. It hasn't always been as successful as we would have liked. Now we're in a position to apply the discovery you've made, which means that we can begin to ask, well, will this gene behave the way we think it will? So presumably your model will enable us to make predictions so that we can work out how genes will behave in different tissues. Exactly. So once you have that program, that model, then you can look at areas that you've never seen before, you've never measured in the original experiments, and use the program to tell you what's going to happen. You can also relate certain, say, mutations to certain diseases, etc. And that's where a lot of the potential lies. I was going to ask, presumably, we know that cancer, killing one person in three, is a genetic disease. Does this mean, then, that different cancers are going to behave differently in different tissues, or that the genetics of cancer is going to differ between tissues because of what you found? So we're definitely going, this is one of these promising directions that we're going to do follow-up research, dedicated research. So instead of just looking at, say, different tissues, we're going to look at different diseases and disease bases, normal or subtypes of diseases, as you mentioned, different types of cancer, etc., and, and concentrate on this. And in the study already published, we, we concentrated on certain uh, neurological diseases and show the relation between the code that we found and mutations in certain areas. So there's a lot of potential there, definitely. And just to finish off, you've done this in mice. Is what goes for a mouse what goes for a person? Do the same messages hidden in the genetic sequence that make the cells chop genes up this way in mice also work in men? Right, so that's an excellent question. So first off, in the original paper, what we did when we analysed diseases, we analysed areas which we know are conserved, and we were able to relate then the changes that we found using a mouse genome to diseases in humans. But, of course, the next step is, of course, to analyze more data coming from human. That's what actually we're doing now. So 
this is sort of work in progress. All right, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Joseph Barish from the University of Toronto, and you can read more about his work. He's published that amazing discovery in the journal Nature this week. We'll put references to that and, in fact, all of the news stories you've heard today on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.